walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Hello and welcome to the Camino Podcast. I'm Dave Whitson. I'm back. It's been a while, but here we are with episode 31. It's been two or three years now since I posted a new episode of the podcast. That was not the plan. I got thrown off course by some work commitments, which were positive but draining, and then had to spend most of the last year working on the two new guidebooks for the Norte Primitivo and the Camino Inglés and the Ruta do Mar, and we finished those up right at the end of spring. They made it out into the world over the course of summer, and then this year's a whole different ballgame. I'm taking a partial sabbatical from teaching in order to do a bigger walk. I'm walking across the USA this year, east to west, following the American Discovery Trail, And as a consequence, I am home for the winter, waiting to get through the worst of the weather to start from the East Coast in late February. And I have a lot of time on my hands, and it's pretty awesome. And so I've thrown myself right back into the podcasting realm. I've got a whole bunch of episodes in development. I hope to have 10 or 12 put together over the next two to three months. So you will not have to wait as long for the next episode as you did for this one which admittedly was a pretty darn long time. If you're curious about what this trans-U.S. walk is like on the American Discovery Trail, I'm working on a podcast related to that as well. It's called Sea to Shining Sea. It's available on SoundCloud as well. And you can also find it hosted on my personal site, DaveWitson.com, where you'll also find some 60,000 words from the road following my first stint earlier this fall walking through the Midwest between Cincinnati and Denver, around 2,000 miles. As for the Camino podcast, in this episode, I've got a couple big names for you. It's two people who saw their lives dramatically reorganized around the Camino. Up first is a name that you probably recognize from its presence on your bookshelf. It's John Brierley, a man responsible for some of the most popular English-language guidebooks to the Camino de Santiago. We speak about his life and times on the Camino over the past three decades, how it's changed, how he's changed, and how he got into writing guidebooks. And then John is followed by Rebecca Scott making a return visit to the podcast. Rebecca lives in Moratino, Spain, has for many years now. And she is updating us on all of the many different projects she's working on, including Peaceable Projects, her now formalized charitable organization supporting albergues and other Camino-related projects in Spain, her literary pursuits, both as a translator, one time only, and frequent author, and a little bit about life in Moratinos and her upcoming book, It's two of the best Camino storytellers around, and I'm excited to come back to you with such a great episode. So sit back and enjoy, and thanks for listening. John Brierley is the author of Guidebooks to the Camino Francés, the Camino Portugués, and the Camino Inglés. 
And I'll leave it at that since everyone listening probably has at least one of those on their bookshelf already. Thanks for joining me, John. Pleasure. Great to be with you. What brought you to pilgrimage in the first place? Well, I had this uh, the classic midlife existential crisis, you know, the successful businessman, the 2.2 children, everything was the way it should have been. And my life was completely empty. I mean, you know, it was devastatingly empty. And I got prompts. It took me a while to see how obvious they were. But I knew I had to do something different and get out and to reappraise my life and where it wasn't going. And, you know, two things happened there. One was a place called the Finton Foundation, which is in Scotland. It's a sort of a loosely termed as an environmental, spiritual community that loves taking people who are having an existential crisis and to, it's based on sort of transformation and, you know, taking people in and refashioning them and, and so they can find themselves and go back out into the world, hopefully a little bit more useful than when they arrived in. And at the same time, the same year, I found the Camino de Santiago, which in a sense also has the same thing, because it's really, in my experience, it's about taking time out from the familiar. Unless we do that, we're unlikely to sort of reappraise or reorientate our lives. And of course, that's one of the great values of the Camino is because it requires this block of time when something can happen in the time. And so when you found your way to the Camino, you were already looking for a change. I was already in a place where I knew I couldn't continue the way I was. I mean, I probably wouldn't have put it in quite such a sort of an obvious place that I was obviously called or looking for something else. Something wasn't working rather than being drawn to something at that stage, which would work for me. Yeah, our life stories become clearer in hindsight, but maybe in the moment it's more muddled. I think so. I think a lot of people I speak to, a lot of people write to me, they head off because something isn't working rather than being drawn into something that's sort of obviously a great flash of inspiration and say, wow, that's what I need to do. It's usually, in my experience, the other way around. I've heard you tell your story of that first pilgrimage before, and it doesn't go smoothly out of the gates. Yes, I mean, again, that was, you know, where I began to start listening to synchronicities, which, you know, I'd never so really seen that before, little coincidences that happened. But essentially, I had, um, on the first pilgrimage, I'd gone off with a great friend of mine from Ireland, and we headed off together. And I realized fairly early on that we were on a different journey, a very different journey. And I didn't really quite know what to do. You know, we'd organize it, we cleared the decks, we, you know, we had five or six weeks together, it was a big thing, we both made the time available. And then wonderful things started to happen. He was a much fitter man than I was. And I found myself really forcing myself to keep up. And at the end of five or six days, I was very close to a complete fracture of my feet. At that stage, it was in Logroño, which happens to have one of the largest foot hospitals in Spain, the sort of classic thing, where they said to me, look, you can do one of two things here. You can either take the train home now, or you can stay here for one week and we'll assess you, you follow a strict regimen, and we'll see whether we can get these legs of yours ready to go on the Camino. So at that stage, there was too big a block of time, and I had to say to my pal, look, uh, you've got to go on. I, even at the end of a week, I mightn't be ready for this. So that help, which I began to see on that journey, was always there, because I hadn't realized quite how what big, big event was going to happen for me over the coming weeks. But it was very obvious that I couldn't have made the shift and the change that I did I had to do it on my own. I'm impressed because 
at that moment in your life where you feel like things aren't working in the right way, you embark on this pilgrimage and a little more than a week in, your foot is practically broken and you don't abandon ship. You do what you need to heal and continue on the pilgrimage. Did you think about scrapping it all in that moment? No, David, I knew something was happening. I couldn't articulate it then. It was all new for me, but I knew something big was happening. I didn't really have a language, I have a better language for it now, 30 years later. But then I just knew something was happening. It was big and I had to hang in and that I needed to be on my own. There's no, no question of not continuing. You mentioned the word synchronicity before. What do you mean by that? Well, these events that happen that seem to follow some sort of a pattern, when they happen, something seems to be... I would call them coincidences until I begin to recognize what they are, and then they become synchronous in the, in the sense that it's obvious that, ah, there's an aha moment. Oh, I see. Oh, wow. Something's obviously calling me for a change of direction here. And that's what I mean by the synchronicity. It, it becomes obvious that something is important, is trying to happen. While it mightn't seem very logical at the time, there's enough impact in it to say, I'm going to follow this because it seems to be part of a path I'm supposed to be on. At what point in the walk did you feel things were genuinely clicking and you were in the full flow of the pilgrimage experience? Oh, not really until, you know, another few weeks in when I really surrendered totally surrendered because, you know, there was a series of events that happened that left me in an altered state, really. And I knew something huge was happening. And then that moment, I completely surrendered to whatever it was. It's interesting word choice, again, surrendered, as though you were relinquishing yourself to a greater power in that context. Is that what you have in mind when you say that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I my old identity my old egoic structure in that moment, it literally collapsed and it was gone. And the new me hadn't yet arrived. But at that stage, there was no old, the old me had left. So I was in that sort of classic place of a total surrender. I didn't know who I was, who I, I was going to become or what I was going to be doing. But I knew that the old life that I had become used to was over. It sounds like an immensely vulnerable moment, surrender, collapse, loss of self. There are some people who would immediately be put off by that, but you view this as an important moment in your development. There was, had been a period of three weeks where things were just getting melted away out of my life. And so when the point came, it was very easy to surrender into it because all the old systems and modus operandi that I was used to just simply wasn't working anymore. So there was no point in trying to hang on to an old identity and an old self. It was over, and I knew it. And so it was relatively easy to surrender into it. There had been another experience earlier on in my life at the start of this year where I had also learned to surrender. So it was a, a second large surrender. So I had got familiar <laughs> with the process of letting go. <laughs> When you completed this first pilgrimage, was the new self underway, or had you simply finished the teardown of the old self? No, the old self was uh, very interesting that way. So the old identity was over. It had collapsed. It had gone. And I walked for some days in a sort of this, really in an altered state. At this stage, 
it was clear that I was to walk in silence. So I, I now I'm walking in silence for actually it turned out to be exactly a week. And walking in silence, you know, obviously was deepening that experience that was happening. And halfway into this week, my new modus operandi was beginning to become clear. Now, it was very illogical. Well, why on earth? You know, it, it was around writing the guidebooks. It was around becoming a professional pilgrim in the sense of, of this was huge in my life and helping me to reorientate myself. And now I was being asked to make, if you like, that experience to articulate it for other people who it might be useful for. And there were all the usual things. Well, who am I? I don't speak Spanish. I don't write. I've never. This is ridiculous. <laughs> but after three, it became very clear at the end of that week of silence that this is what I was going to be doing, however illogical it was. So you knew at the end of that first walk? Oh, absolutely. At the end of that walk, I absolutely knew that I was going to be writing guidebooks. It was very, very clear to me, and it always has been, that these guidebooks had to be written on the basis that as a pilgrim, we travel two roads simultaneously. We travel the outer pathway through beautiful Spain and Galicia or France or wherever we start, but we also are on our inner, inner journey. And that was very clear that the two routes had to be somehow spoken of. And that's what the guidebooks were, were to be about. One of the things I've observed over the years is, and this is from my own experience writing guidebooks, anything that feels subjective in the books that I've written generates a lot of communication, often criticism. Yeah. And many guidebooks, the author doesn't necessarily matter because the text is almost robotic. Correct. But if one were to flip open a Briarly guidebook, you immediately know that this is a Briarly guidebook. It has a very distinct stamp. Yes. Still today, I'm writing a new guidebook here on the Camino in Vienna. It's the same thing. I'm writing on the basis that somebody reading the book, because I write for somebody in my mind, somebody who's traveling on their own, I am absolutely with them on that journey, which is why I put, for instance, the, the photograph of myself, and I wanted to personalize it. There's issues now because it's much harder for me to update them because, of course, I'm very easily recognized now because of that. But I can't have it both ways. I wanted to personalize. I wanted people to feel that I was journeying with them, which they do. And overwhelmingly, that is why people write and say that's what they what they want and why they buy the guidebook and why they and they really feel that I'm with them. And that's what they like about it. So it is unusual that I do accept it. But then the words I choose are to some extent, I often look at them and I say, where did I write that from? Or where did I get that phrase or whatever? But it obviously is very unthreatening. It's somehow giving us all, helping to give us all permission to talk about the inner journey and make it easier for us to to open up. If I open up and talk about my own journey, then it sort of, if you like, gives permission for others to, to do the same. I think I could say that I know that that's why they have been so successful in a way. How has the shift from being a pilgrim in your first walk to being a pilgrim and a guidebook author changed your perspective on the Camino, if at all? Not really. I mean, what happened for me, and it wasn't immediate, and it grew on me, but within a relatively short time, within a year or two, I began to understand my life was a pilgrimage. 
And I mean that on a day-to-day felt sense. I, you know, I'm on a pilgrimage now talking to you. I can never not be on it once I have that mindset. And of course, the beauty of that is that it makes my life so much easier to live because no matter what, things still come up that disturb me or confront me. But somehow I see it in the context of my own spiritual journey. And so it makes it actually much more interesting. It takes the drama out. It's just, oh, here we go. Oh, gosh, I thought I'd learned that lesson, but I obviously haven't. Here we go again. So, so it becomes sort of, if you like, endlessly exciting and interesting because of that. You mentioned before that now when you walk, people often recognize you. Yes. Does that make it harder for you to be in the moment, to walk in silence, to have those things that were so enriching early on? Yes, it makes it very difficult because having said that, you know, my life is a pilgrimage and I feel it that way and that's the felt sense I have. Nevertheless, when I'm on the route, I'm there in order to do a specific task, which is to keep myself very alert and aware as to are there new water fountains, new accommodation, has the route changed in some way? And being a man, I could only ever do one thing at a time, With even then sometimes with difficulty, but certainly there's no question of me walking and talking was I, I couldn't do that so when I meet people I say look I you know I've got a specific task here I can't do what I need to do and walk with you so I'm going to um, let you go on ahead and uh, you know I'll see you in the next town and we can maybe have a drink or whatever or whatnot so it has become harder from that point of view particularly with the you know the popular routes like the Portuguese and the uh, Francaise route because there's a lot of books my books are out there and, and it does make it harder. As a consequence of walking these routes again and again to update the books, you have now had this experience of returning multiple times. And I think more and more pilgrims are finding themselves coming back for a second, a third time on these routes. What should people returning do to keep the experience rich? Over the years, we, I, you know, I'm always sort of developing my thoughts and my thinking. And people often ask me for advice and so on and so forth. I mean, at some point... We absolutely have to bring the Camino back home. What I say back home, if in order to feel a sense of connectedness, if in order to feel a sense of confraternity and a sense of spiritual connection and family, we have to be walking the Camino de Santiago, we sort of miss the point. There has to come a, a point where our our life takes over and becomes the pilgrimage, because otherwise it's rather like you know the church on a Sunday. If in order to, you know, experience some sense of the sacred, we have to go into a particular time or a particular building, well, that really isn't going to cut it, is it? Now, there are certainly are times where we need to renew our own sense of direction or, or our vows or whatever it is. And then, of course, it's entirely right and correct and proper that we you know, would go back on the Camino. But once somebody has said to me they've done the Camino de Santiago seven times, I do wonder to myself, gosh, I wonder, is, that, is there sort of some sort of a, uh, an addiction there that's running? And perhaps that needs to be examined. Now, having said that, I've walked it probably 50 times, but with a different focus. What are the secrets that you've found for bringing it home and making it central to your life? Well, I think that there are a number of ways. I mean, just come back from Australia and visiting many different confraternities there. It's always been obvious to me, but there are 
all around the world in virtually every big city and a lot of the towns in the UK, America, Canada, wherever we live, there are these confraternities where we can reconnect and come together in our country of origin to, you know, on a fairly regular basis, you know, there are some of these groups are meeting once a week and they go out for a walk and not everybody goes every week, but you know, there's a sort of a sense of coming back together to reconnect on the basis of that sense of the, the communal family that is so important for so many people. They really get this tremendous sense of belonging that so many people are looking for in their lives. And they can do that back in the home. And also, those are a great forum for people. Often when people clear the decks and they go out and they're on a month in nature, they've cleared out all the sort of all the nonsense in the head and the mindset becomes clear and then some insights drop in and often when we get home there's that awful thing oh welcome back to the real world where we really need i believe challenge consensus reality what is real and if somebody gets a sort of a hit or an insight or a new direction that can be a very incredibly important and precious thing and so people when they get back home can reconnect with others who've had a similar experience, you know, completely different direction or whatever or not, but, but they know where you're coming from and can support us back there. We don't need to continue to go back to the Camino in order to get that support. We can find it back in our, in our home country. And it is absolutely amazing. It amazes me. The intensity and the variety of these confraternities all around the world, it's quite staggering. And when you come together, I mean, it, you know, people weeping, people in a real sense of out of joy, you know, meeting fellow people. And that's one way we can do it. And it's a very important way. You've been linked to the Camino for some three decades now. And it has, of course, changed quite dramatically over that time. To you, what are the most significant changes that you have witnessed on the Camino over your time walking? Well, the obvious one would be the numbers, particularly on, certainly on the Camino Francaise. I mean, when I walked some of the routes 30 years ago, I mean, we, I was staying in abandoned houses, literally. There were very few albergues there. I mean, on the way out, on some of the more remote in Portugal, there was nothing. There were hardly even arrows back then. So the numbers have changed dramatically. And of course, the infrastructure has changed to facilitate that because it's sort of it's a supply and demand situation. Uh, so that's the biggest change of all. Yes. You said in an interview once that there was a time when you thought the Camino was becoming too commercial, but you subsequently changed your views on that. How do you think about that right now, the commercialization of the Camino and the spiritual side? Well, I remember I stopped off, I stayed with a, a woman who several generations, her family had run pilgrim hostels outside Pamplona. And she'd closed for a year because she just needed to, you know, regenerate and uh, because it could be very demanding. And we were chatting and she said, you know, John, she said, it was exactly the same in the medieval period. People were painting their whatever they were, they were probably wasn't yellow arrows then, whatever it was, you know, trying to entice people past their inn, you know, this way or that way and enticing them with sort of free wine and this, that and the other. And she said the numbers there, because it was double counting, because people were walking to Santiago and then walking all the way back home, the numbers then 
were almost what they are now. They were estimating there was almost up to half a million people in the medieval period, which is quite staggering. Now, admittedly, there was only a quarter of a million going in each direction, but with the actual numbers on the route, the numbers were staggering. And I've also met many people skeptics starting out from this route but you know really by the time they hit they've been on the route for three or four weeks rubbing shoulders with other people all searching and asking the big existential questions something always happens so i think this idea that you know i had a romantic notion of this that it was all you know nice and free and i had to wade across rivers there were no bridges and it was all exciting and daunting and whatever And I I fell for that romantic notion. But for other people who've never had to take their clothes off and wade across rivers in the middle of the winter or whatever or whatnot, they don't miss it. Um, So I I got lost in that romanticism, if you like. And people get just as a valid an experience that they need with hundreds of thousands. Of course, we talk about these vast numbers, but you know, we know when we're all walking in the same direction, you can, even with the big numbers, you can be on your own for long periods of time each day. So it's not really, it doesn't really feel all that crowded. With those increases in pilgrim numbers, I certainly have heard from, and I'm sure you have heard from, people who are planning their first pilgrimage, and they're wondering, should they do the Francais? Because maybe they're put off by those numbers. Do you think that the Francais is an important first experience, or would you advise some to consider other options? Well, I would say the vast bulk of people walk in the Camino de Santiago. When I say that, I mean, I mean, you know, 90 plus percent are not actually hikers per se. You know, most other routes and long distance routes is the other way around. You know, 90% are hikers, but here these are people, something's happened in their lives, they've never really done long distance walking with a backpack. So therefore, the facilities on the Camino Frances and now the Camino Portuguese, well certainly from Porto, they're so it's so well structured. You know, the foot hospitals in Lagronia that I mentioned, the massage, the spiritual support, you know, all, all the support that is there for people, particularly for people who aren't good at reading maps or hiking or whatever I want out, it can be a very valuable experience. And I'm also at pains to say to people who are thinking of tackling some of the remoter alternative routes, which I'm very anxious, and that's why I'm writing a book at the moment about the Camino in Vienna, to try and sort of relieve some of the pressure of people going through Saria, which is now getting very, very packed, is that if somebody is tackling some of these more remote routes, they do need to know that the infrastructure is not there. And so they are much more in a sort of a pioneering mode. You know, they might arrive in a place and find there's no bed or cafes closed and there's no other cafe for another 10K or whatever. So therefore, but a first Camino, particularly for a non-hiker, the more established routes are a sensible way to go. As the Camino continues to grow in popularity, and there's no reason to think that these numbers will halt anytime soon, Do you think that it needs to change in new ways moving forward? Do you think that there needs to be some specific targeted adjustments for the Camino to remain vital and transformative in the years ahead? One of my big issues is that as the the money from the pilgrims is you know comes into the coffers of the local authorities, 
you know, they're terribly apt to get out the sort of the, the, the concrete and the tarmac and cover over some of the lovely earth paths. And there's nobody that I know that likes walking on concrete or tarmac. You know, there's something lovely and soft about a woodland path. So, you know, that's always been an issue for me, which is why I always offer alternative routes in all the guidebooks. I research those out myself. So a lot of them aren't waymarked, but if they're along, say, a river path or something like that, then it's you can't really get lost or along an estuary or that sort of a thing. So there are ways of relieving or making it more pilgrim friendly, if you like, in that way. I do think that it pains to say to people who say, oh, it's got very crowded, John, hasn't it? You know, statistics are easy. There are 80% of all pilgrims still walk the Commune de Frances or one of the routes that come into it, like the Nortes and so on and so forth. 80%. From Saint-Jean to Santiago is 800 kilometers. There are over 80,000, not 8,000, but 80,000 waymarked, officially recognized routes to Santiago. So anybody who says is ruined, they need to go and examine some of the other 72,000 kilometers, which is hard to got anybody on them. So I think that, you know, the infrastructure, if you're talking about those large numbers of people, and indeed, it took me a little while to really recognize that an increasing number of people arrive in Santiago, not on foot, not on horseback, not on a bicycle, but in a wheelchair. And so it is wonderful that some of the routes, like the Camino Frances, is much more wheelchair friendly. So, you know, having decried the sort of the concrete paths, there's also another aspect of concrete paths is that other people can travel on them who mightn't otherwise be able to travel. And as I said, there are always these alternative paths along river stretches and so on. So I think you mentioned it earlier. I think it'll be a long, long time before the golden goose stops laying the golden eggs because it's tired or worn out. I just think there's so many routes available, so many opportunities that I, I can't ever seeing it. It's horses for courses. And there's a lot of people who like the big crowds. They love the, sort of the nice camaraderie. It's rather like Fatima. I mean, people head off and there are tens of thousands to Fatima. And they love big groups of 100 together walking. It's not right sort of walking, but it, it suits many other people. And it's, it's so everybody, the Camino can meet everybody's needs. Three decades of pilgrimage, three decades on the Camino. Does it ever get old for you? Never, never, never. And the thing that keeps me ever passionate about it is how it's changing people's lives. I meet every year, every day I meet people on Skype or phone or email or when I'm on the route. It's changing people's lives. And that's so profound and so exciting because there's almost no other entity like it in the world. It takes everybody from every religion and from none. It takes from every nation on the earth has walked the Camino. It's black, white, young, old. You know, I've walked with somebody of 94. Last year, I walked with two people who were under the age of one. Well, they were in a buggy or whatever. So it's so eclectic. It's so broad. It's such a huge. And there's not even the United Nations can say that people from every single country on the earth walk it regularly. I mean, it's so exciting. It's changing people's lives in a very positive way. And we need to change our lives. You know, we need to shift the consciousness of the planet. Humanity has got stuck. And we need to shift it. And one of the ways we are shifting it and are able to shift it is through the communities. I really believe the communities are that powerful and that important. 
What does it mean to you to have this legacy that you already have? I mean, the the changes, the transformation that you have just described that's occurring for a lot of people, you are their chaperone as they navigate that process, both the inward and external journey. Well, I hope I am a chaperone, and there are many. You're a chaperone. We all play our part in our different ways. You know, some people come back and they volunteer in hospital areas. Mine is I offer these guidebooks and I'm available for people to talk and helping to, you know, create new alternative routes for people. So we each have our... The Camino has gifted so much to me, and I like to feel, I hope that I'm able to give something back. And we all have our different part to play, and I hope I'm playing mine. I mean, I do get a lot of people who write to me and say that, you know, I've been an important part of the journey. And for that, that keeps me inspired and keeps me going. And I hope that I will be able to die in harness to the Camino, because certainly there's not a day goes by where it doesn't inspire me by people's stories, people's stories of the shift and the change and the transformation that is happening in those people's lives. That's terribly inspiring. Let's finish here. You've mentioned the new guide to the Camino Invierno a couple of times in this conversation. Some people listening are familiar with the route. For others, it's the first time they're hearing of it. So could you talk a little about what that route offers and give us a timeline on the book? When might we see it? Well, it'll be, it'll be out early next year. Well, it'll be out next year at some stage. But I suppose that the part of the thing that inspired me was seeing this immense pressure going through Saria. A quarter of a million people will go through Saria this year, just coming to a close. And Saria is, you know, just over the 100K from uh, Santiago. It's a nightmare to get. You have to go to Lugo and then get buses somewhere. <laughs> it's, it's very difficult to get to Saria. There's a place called Monforte de Lemos on the Camino in Vienna where in comparison to the uh, quarter of a million that have went through Saria, 78 people last year commenced in that town. It's beautiful. You know, it's easy to get to. And the same, it'll also be part, and that book will also be the uh, end of the Camino Salabres from Orense. And Orense, again, is terribly accessible, lovely old Roman town. Around about 2,000 people start there, as opposed to a quarter of a million through Saria. So, and again, there's 10 buses and 10 trains a day to Orense. It's so, I mean, it's, it's so illogical. And it's beautiful old Roman road, a lovely old oak forest, and the lovely river seal with its lovely wines. I mean, why not make this available and spread the economic pilgrim dollar to a, a broader range of, of people who would be delighted to receive pilgrims? So that's really what inspires me to help offer those alternatives to people. Thank you for speaking with me, John. It's been a pleasure. And thank you as well for all of your work on behalf of so many pilgrims. Well, lovely to talk with you too, David. And thank you very much for giving the opportunity to have a chat with you. Rebecca Scott is the president and CEO of Peaceable Projects, author of The Moorish Whore, translator of The Great Westward Walk, Queen of the Ditch Pigs, and Camino Busybody Extraordinaire. And she joins me now from the Peaceable Kingdom in Moratino, Spain. Thanks for joining me, Rebecca. It's wonderful to be here. It's great to talk with you for a second time. And I feel like I could call you every three months and hear lots of interesting things that are happening. What's Moratino like in late November? Well, usually it's raining, but now we're having a beautiful, gorgeous, very chilly day outside and everything's very, very quiet. All the summer people have gone back to the city and we're back down to about 16 people here. Everybody's kind of tucking into the house, spending a lot of time by the fire, waiting for the winter wheat to come up. 
it's a beautiful place, but it's kind of lonesome sometimes. Does the community, those remaining 16 people, really come together or does everyone sort of hunker down in their own houses in the winter? Well, we spend a lot of time hunkered down, but then over at the one bar that's open gets a lot of action. <laughs> um, we get together for holidays and at church on Sunday. Everybody comes to church, even if they're not church people, because that's what you do. And then everybody gets together afterward, plays cards and stuff at the bar. So when we are together, most of us get along pretty well. If we need something, there's somebody right there, and it's really pretty good. What's the pilgrim traffic like this time of year? This time of year, it's usually pretty quiet. If you look at the stats coming into Santiago, there's about 200 a day still. But out here, we see them in the morning. They bomb on through probably 10 or 20 every morning that we see because we're out with the dogs. But yes, it's slacked off a lot, but it's not nearly as quiet as it used to be. I can remember when November, December, January, you saw nobody at all, but things are changing all the time. That's when we get most of our pilgrim traffic is when the other places are all closed down. And so they come to our house. So winter is our busy time. Yeah. So the population of Moratino still doubles every morning from pilgrim traffic in November. For about five minutes until they blow on through. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about peaceable projects. I don't know if when I spoke to you a few years back, was it actually a full-fledged nonprofit at that point, or is this a more recent development? We went nonprofit, uh, I think, two or three years ago. And two years ago is when I started t- taking the books, did the bookkeeping, which is a nightmare for me. We became an official nonprofit in the U.S. and Massachusetts a little over two years ago. And it makes things a little more legal. It gives me a little bit more legal protection when I'm moving money from the U.S. into Europe. And it's become a bit more codified and I have much more help and much more presence on the internet mostly. This is a, a miracle of social media, really. I find out what the needs are over here and I just put the word out on social media and people step up and send money to fund these immediate needs on the Camino. What are a couple of the big projects that you've taken on over the last year or so? Oh, this year's been really busy. Believe it or not, we had a period in the middle that was really very quiet. But this year, we've got new beds for an albergue in Zamora on the Via de la Plata. And we got some blankets for a brand new place in Zamora as well. We got a bicycle for a place right near here in Calzada del Coto. And also the great big one we recently did was here in Sagun. They were going to shut down the monastery, the Benedictinas, where the Marist fathers are running a big albergue in town because of their plumbing has Legionella bacteria. The health department was going to make them close down forever and found out about that oh, about three weeks ago. They're good friends of ours. We helped them get started over there. So it would be a terrible shame to lose them. More than 3,000 people a year stay there. So... I got to thinking, they said that they need 20,000 euros to tear out all of the old plumbing and put in new. And everyone was in despair because no one knew where to get that much money. And I thought, we can do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a bit more spiritualized than that. I was sitting in their chapel and I looked up at St. Benedict and he looked at me. I said, yeah, I I owe the Benedictines, so I better do something. I did have a big, big gift that somebody very recently had given us. We had a legacy and someone left us some money in a will. So I said, well, here's all this money. I can put that toward it to start and then ask everyone else to contribute another 10,000. And that's what happened. Within a week, we had raised 10,000 euro. It was quite stunning. I had never asked for more than six. I thought, I'm going to keep it small. I'm not going to get crazy and I'm not going to turn into some major you know, Red Cross or anything here. But it's pretty stunning to see how generous people are. 
and how many of them there are. There was more than 200 people ponied up everything from three euros to $500 a person. It's fabulous. And the best part is I get to play Santa Claus then. I gather up all the money and I just I give it to the people who need it. And they're all very happy. Most of the time, they're very happy. Two days ago, I got a call that there was um, in Manharin up on the mountain, they had run out of firewood and they were snowed in. We have an emergency fund. So we were able to just make a call and have firewood delivered up there. So it's really nice that this is working out. It makes me very happy. It's gratifying for me, but it, the real giving is being done by a whole, whole lot of people who are willing to send 20, 30, 40 euros or dollars and help out with these immediate needs. There are other funding sources for larger projects, but this one is designed for immediate and more urgent needs. And it's great to do it. I'm, I like it. <laughs> being American, we like to see a problem and solve it. Bing, bang, boom. <laughs> Do you have other projects in mind for down the road? Or when someone's in need, they put up the bat signal and then you spring into action? That's what it is. That's what it's about. It happens to be formed because my husband and I were hospitaleros in a place on the Via de la Plata many years ago. And it was very hot summertime weather and the refrigerator broke down. It was filled with meat products. Things got really nasty really fast. I called for help that we needed to replace this fridge right now to a couple of well-known funding sources, which will remain nameless. And they said, well, we have to have a board meeting and you have to fill in all these papers and we'll get back to you in April. And it's like, look, this is August now. We need the fridge now. So, but we ended up buying that fridge ourselves. But I thought really there needs to be a fast action funding source on the Camino because this this happens a lot. You know, people's cars break down, the, the downspouts come off their roof, and there are places that are existing from day to day on donations. This is a disaster for them. But it's nice to have the funding there. I have still not got the word out to a lot of places, don't know we exist yet, but slowly and slowly we're finding the word gets through. For people listening right now who didn't know about your work and now they've learned that the Sahagun project is already paid for, but maybe they're eager to contribute. And, you know, in the U.S., we're coming up on the end of the year and people may be looking to share some resources. Can they contribute now? And are there other ways that help would be useful beyond financial ones? Well, we did some personnel movement, volunteers. I helped to staff a couple of albergues. I'm a board member of, of FIX, which is the Fraternidad Internacional del Camino de Santiago. It's an international little group of activists on the Camino. And we have an albergue in Grado on the Camino Primitivo. It's so popular up there that we have extra people every year. So when there are donativos in other places on the Caminos like ours that are strictly donativo and try to, to keep the spirit alive of the trail, we'll help them with their staffing as well. And when they don't have enough volunteers or somebody drops out, we can often find somebody to plug the hole. People can do that if they're here and if they speak adequate Spanish. If they, people want to give money, we will put it in the bank. And when we need it, we'll use it. I can't tell people in advance what we're going to use it for. This is a problem I've run into with these grant-making organizations. You know, They want a list of what you're going to spend it on, and <laughs> it doesn't work like that. We don't know what we're going to spend it on until the need arises. So people have to kind of trust us not to go on a holiday to the beach or something. You can contribute through the website. We have peaceableprojects.org on the web, and we have our links there to donate. I'm not a huge techie person, so that's about as sophisticated as it gets. 
if you're in Europe, we have another funding site here in Europe, which is also linked to that website. I've known you as an author. We talked about your novel, The Moorish Horror, previously. I didn't realize you were a translator, and I don't think you did either. And then it turns out you translated Bolitz's work, The Great Westward Walk. How did you become a translator? Well, I didn't mean to be a translator. If you read the intro to the book, you see this. One of the other board members at Fix is a writer, and he worked with Bolich to make this book happen. He was the original editor for Bolich's book. I didn't ever know Bolich. I know his father, who published the book, but they wanted it in English, and I knew it was pretty well known. I mean, it was all over the Camino for a while. I started to read it early on, and I found it so it was a little hard going for me. Um, my Spanish is not so great. Although I do read a lot of Spanish books. Finally, the dad came to me one day with a bottle of chocolate and a box of cookies. And he came to my house and said, look, we got to have this done. And I don't know anyone else who can do it or who I trust to do this. And it was all like, wow, feed my ego, buy me a drink. <laughs> so I said, oh, I'll give it a shot. How about that? I'd like to have a big project to get me through winter. And that year I didn't have one. So I thought this will be good for my Spanish and It'll help him out and blah, blah, blah. He also offered me a really good book deal. So <laughs> it was a lot of pluses. So I sat down with it and I, I started digging into it. And he gave me full editorial freedom as well. I'm, I'm more of an editor these days than a writer. So I did a good sharp edit on the book. I think it made it much more readable in English. And it's a little shorter in English. But um, it took me a lot longer than I thought it would take. And it was a lot, a lot of work. But it, it turned out quite well. It's quite successful. It's probably the most successful book that I've been involved in. And I feel kind of proud of it. And I really, really like Bullich. He's a real character. And I think this is the best Camino book so far that I've read in any language. And I'm really happy to be associated with it. It's really unusual in terms of pilgrim journals, pilgrim memoirs that are available in English. There aren't many Spanish pilgrims whose books have been translated into English. Nearly every pilgrim account starts in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port and continues on to Santiago. And the language is really quite artful. You know, sometimes he's poetic, other times lively and rambunctious. He has a very distinct voice. And you've done a brilliant job of making that come across. He's a character. Sometimes he, get, he goes off wandering away. He, a lot of Spanish writers do that. They go off on tangents. I was a journalist for many years, and we were all about get to the point, make the point fast, make it hard, catch your audience, and fill in the details later. So sometimes I have to reel it in or make it make better sense. But yeah, his voice is distinctive, and he's he's young and smart and witty. And it was challenging sometimes, the, the wit to get it to translate, and the, the poetry as well. But I had some great help from some people at William & Mary here, there in, in America, with some of the more weird things I had to translate. Old guys talking trash about the local floozy or the card games. You know, how, how do you write about a card game compellingly? But I had some great help. People who are listening who don't know the backstory with Bolitz might be wondering, why is it you, you never met him? Why is he not involved in this process? What's the backstory on Bolitz, the person? Bolitz was a young man from up in the Basque country. He's a very Spanish guy. His mother's home was along the Camino up in the mountains in Berroguete, and his father is from a town on the Camino del Norte, right on the beach. He grew up in the Camino. He loved the Camino. He walked it several times and biked it several times, and he got involved with a group online and realized he was a good writer, and he wrote very well. His stuff is still out there. 
And it's funny as, as heck if you can read it. But anyway, he decided to write with the encouragement of a guy named Jose Antonio de la Reira. He's another writer. Decided to start writing this book about his last Camino, the one he walked from his home, which was very meaningful to him to walk from his door to Santiago. And everybody say, oh, cool, that's nice. So you're writing a book about your experience. But he knows all these legends and tales and wild stories about the Camino, about the villages along the way, and about the people. He also has his own story packed in there, growing up along the road, and as a young man in Spain, and the games they played. The thing is, though, halfway through writing this story, he discovered that he was very ill, and that he had ALS. He had um, Lou Gehrig's disease. And it was closing in fast on him. He was running out of time to finish this book. So if you are tuned into the construction and the voice in the book, you'll see how the, the flavor changes in the, in the writing. And the pace changes, where he's starting to put more of himself and more. he gets more lyrical and a little bit more fast-paced as you move along. And toward the end, when he was more and more ill and more and more paralyzed, he was using a device to, to write with that used the movement of his eyes to type this thing. And toward the very end, he was starting to lose consciousness. Things get a little bit surreal, but it all is this wonderful lines up with the rhythm of the Camino and the, the beginning and the end of the Camino is fundamentally the, the end of his life. It's quite a blow at the end. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a pretty spectacular book and it's pretty ambitiously written. Some places it doesn't quite work, but in other places it's a spectacle. Really, really amazing book. So Bullich died three days after he finished the book, and his family published it and distributed it. It's his father is who asked me to translate. As you say in the opening chapters, it's entertaining and it's instructive. And for people who have grown up outside of Spain, you learn a lot about Spanish and Basque customs and then in those final chapters, I think the prose is as moving and elegant as I've seen in any pilgrim narrative. And when you read it with that backstory in mind, it's just, it's about as emotional a reflection as I can remember reading on the Camino. Yes, I agree. It was also a wonderful challenge as an editor and as a translator to give it all of the pathos it deserved without becoming mawkish or pathetic. As a translator, how much of your work is technical and how much of it is creative? In other words, how much of yourself do you think goes into that process as a translator? Well, I've only done one book, so I can't speak as a translator. I translated one. <laughs> I have to say that the, the Bullish book has a lot of me in it. If you know my work, you will see that my, you know, my voice is pretty distinctive and my style is very kind of dry and structured. That's why working with him was a refreshing good thing for me because he's loose and he's lyrical. So I had to let go, let him be, but also give him the structure, the backbone that he needed to make the narrative work. So there's some me in there, although no one has objected. No one who knows both books has told me, hey, you should have done this differently. So I'm happy for that. <laughs> but I can I still do not call myself a translator. No, no I'm not, that's not my bag. But it was an exciting project to be part of. I see you have a new book in the pipeline. Yes. A Furnace Full of God. And it's a great title. So what's this new book about? This new book is a memoir. It's about life here in this town, in this place, in the Peaceable Kingdom, the year 2010. Although it goes into the background of who we are and why we're here. But 2010 was a holy year 
for a very long time, that book was called Holy Year. A lot of important people came here and, and stayed. It was A lot of important things happened then. It's not a Camino book per se. It's much more about this town and the people who live here and our life here as expatriates and as Camino people and serving the people on the Camino who stay here. And also the people who come here and stay, the um, hospitaleros. I work a lot with hospitaleros. They're exceptional. Some of them are crazy, including, maybe including us. But it's a book about the scene, behind the scenes on the Camino. It's so many Camino books are, you know, we start here, we end here. I met this person, I ate this. But this is really very different because it, it doesn't move. It has two Caminos in it, but they're like a chapter and a half a piece. Because I would still walk the Camino myself. So I did two Caminos that year. And the final one in this book is a little bit bolichy. It's not surreal, but it, it was very much a, an atonement. It's a really kind of a novel, but it happened. This is a true story. It's 2019 now, and this is a memoir on 2010. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this book needed nine years to come about? Well, I've never written a memoir before, and it's totally different from anything we've ever written. The book was written three different times. It's gone through the mill and back again. And it's taken me a while to market the book and to get it into the form that I want it to be. Because it, it's not just a pick-up-in-the-airport kind of paperback. It's a, it's a pretty book. It's elegant. And it's illustrated. So it's taken a while to produce it. This is my Valentine to this town. So I tried to make it as special as I can. What's something special about Moratinos that pilgrims don't see, just sort of passing through five minutes, 10 minutes, even an overnight? What have you come to love about this town by living there? Well, so these are tough people. There's, there's some hard-ass people here that so they're not easy to get to know. But they're deeply generous and deeply helpful. A pilgrim might not see it because I, not everybody in the town is appreciative of pilgrims. But when we have a need here, we have people at the door to help us. And we, they don't know us. We will always be outsiders and strangers here. I was in hospital earlier this year. I was pretty seriously ill. My husband doesn't drive. They brought him down 50 kilometers to the hospital to see me. They took turns. And that's a community. <laughs> that is a community. And that's the wonderful thing about this town. There's a very decent end giving people. A lot of them don't like each other. Some of them can be really nasty, but they're very human, but they're also very good. And I love that. When will your book be available? <laughs> well, that's always <laughs> a burning question, isn't it? It's in dummy form. I'm meeting this evening with the person who's putting it out with me to find out what's next. It's coming up um, within two weeks. We'll put it up on Amazon. We don't do big parties to um, kick it off because there's nobody here to have a party with. But we'll, I'll try to make as big of a noise and splash as I can to let people know that it's available hardback or paperback, all the different forms and platforms that we can come up with. The timing is actually good in a way because we're now coming up on the next holy year. So 2021, it's the longest gap that exists between holy years, 2010 to 2021. Mm -hmm. What are you expecting for this next holy year? Well, we were here for the last one, as you know, 2010. I discovered the Camino and the one in 1993, 1994. It's never as big as the hype says it's going to be. Don't let it frighten you. They always say there's going to be a million people on the Camino. It's like, no, 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 no. 2010, they were warning us that there are going to be people sleeping in the plazas. You're going to have to put beds down in your porch, you know, crazy stuff. Nah, it's never so bad. I wouldn't worry about it. It might be bad in the last hundred, but nah, 
Don't you worry. <laughs> you have such an interesting and, and rich perspective on the Camino. So maybe we can wrap up with just kind of a big picture question. From your vantage point, can you identify one trend that you see developing on the Camino that is exciting or encouraging to you, something that makes you feel optimistic, and one trend that is concerning, something that you think needs to be attended to? That's a big question. I can answer them both in one go, because I'm doing a lot of thinking about this. I'm going to do a presentation this summer on this. It's, it's women. There's so many more women on the Camino now than there ever was. I can't talk about 500 years ago, but in our incarnation of the Camino, there's so many women now walking, and there's so many women of a certain age, women who would never would have dared walk this far or go, you know, leave the house and go out without hubby. And young women and old women and middle-aged women, fabulous number of women stepping out and doing this crazy thing. And it's very empowering to them. And they're loving it. And they're making alliances with one another through this and networking all over the world. And it's very empowering for women to do this. And it's relatively safe. It's a glorious thing to witness. But the downside is that a lot of these women have never been outdoors before. And they don't exactly know how to behave on a trail. And they leave a lot of trash behind. And that's one of my issues. I do a, a trash cleanup here too. And no one's taught women how to use the toilet outdoors without leaving a trail of toilet paper. I really wish the women would learn how to clean up after themselves. <laughs> but that's pretty minor stuff. It's a rich and wonderful thing to see them here and to be a part of it. But also, I don't, I'm not crazy about cleaning up after them. For someone who might respond and say, it's not just the women, men are leaving it behind too. From your perspective, this is more of a women's issue? Well, there's always someone who's going to make an exception to everything you say. <laughs> uh, and this is strictly my own observation. I could be wrong, and I'll take any kind of correction. But no, I think it's because the ladies, we've all been taught how to use the bathroom, and, and these are good and dainty ladies. And I'm not going to fault them for it, but I wish that there was some way to, to correct this. Fair enough. Could you just talk a little bit more just to wrap up about the safety end of things? Because it flares up a lot on Pilgrim Forums, the issue of Pilgrim safety and particularly women's safety on the Camino. From your perspective, when people express concerns, big picture, how safe is it? And what are some good things for people to keep in mind when they're walking to maximize their safety? Well, that's another big one. Nobody's more crazy about safety than Americans. This is really American issue. And I think Americans are raised full of fear and they bring their fear with them when they come on the Camino. Statistically, you are more safe anywhere along the Camino than anywhere in the United States. A lot of people kind of get overconfident and they leave their camera out on their bed and then it disappears. But when it comes to violent crime, you are so much more safe here. You are so safe that when violent crime happens, it's a national story. Whereas in America, you know, violent crime happens everywhere around the corner on a daily basis. And it's you know, a big yawn unless there's um, multiple fatalities or something. But here, it's massively weird to have violent crime on the Camino. And people should relax and stop worrying so much. The other thing to remember, those creeps abound. There are creeps everywhere in the world. And a lot of creepy people will follow you around and look at you and make faces at you. Not everybody who follows you around and makes faces is going to hurt you. But you know, it's still unpleasant. Your idea of a creep might be just my Uncle Frank being Uncle Frank. So give everybody the benefit of a doubt. But if you feel afraid, 
get around someone else, get some help, walk with other people. Don't be alone. I love to be alone. I've walked so many Caminos on my own for weeks at a time. I've been followed and I've had a few scares, but I've never been hurt and I've never been assaulted. And I feel safe here. I feel safer here than anywhere else. You got to listen to your gut and you have to use common sense. But don't worry about being here. You're, you're a lot safer here than you are at home. Thank you, Rebecca, for speaking with me again. And I look forward to seeing your new book, A Furnace Full of God, when it comes out. Yes. Well, I thank you very much for thinking of me and I'll have a good one. Anshon Gonzalez Cabarain, otherwise known as Bolich, writes towards the end of the Great Westward Walk and also towards the end of his life, quote, I am small and alone in the middle of the Obradoro Square, and the Cathedral of Santiago stands before me in all her glory. Completely emptied, I lean on my staff and stand motionless before the majestic Baroque stones of Compostela. Face to face we stand alone, she and I, washed clean with the same water from the sky. Skipping ahead. Providence gave me this magical stretch of solitude. I can now attest that I am not the same nervous man who pulled shut the door of his house a month ago. I am the same, but tanned. I am the same, but more free. I am the same, with far less fear. I am... But who am I? It's funny, I've never asked myself that question. No, I've never considered it. If I ever did, I must have been drunk, because I do not remember it. Who am I? I wonder. I take a deep breath, and listen for the answer. I am one part limestone and another part sand. I am a background figure, one who goes unnoticed. I am the one who says no, I've never been there. I am the one who smashes a plate just when everyone falls silent. I am the suspect who dutifully signs in at the checkpoint, the one who doesn't wear a helmet when riding a bike. I am the one who does not believe in the saints or trust in holy men, who only believes the faith of his mother. I am the man of letters in a conference of scientists, and the scientist in a congress of poets. I am the one who doesn't get the joke the first time, who cannot tell a joke. I'm the one that steps in the dog shit, the one who doesn't understand politics or football, the one who knows only that he knows nothing. Bolich died at the age of 41, three years after the pilgrimage that he describes in the Great Westward Walk. That's all for this time. Thanks to John Brierly. You can find his guidebooks updated regularly at CaminoGuides.com and pretty much anywhere you buy books. Thanks as well to Rebecca Scott. Her online home is peaceableprojects.org. That's where you can watch for her new book, A Furnace Full of God, learn about her other publications, and also contribute to her charitable work on the Camino. Donate now and you can equip her with funds to move quickly if an urgent need arises. Nobody asked me. You can find the Camino Podcast on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, and on my personal site, DaveWitson.com. Please get in touch through email at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or Facebook at The Camino Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I will be back very, very soon.